This is Global Tennessee, news analysis and commentary from the Tennessee World Affairs Council in Nashville. Global Tennessee is produced in association with the Center for International Business at Belmont University and the International Business Council of the Nashville Area Chamber of Commerce. The World Affairs Council is a nonpartisan, nonprofit educational association, and the views expressed on Global Tennessee are those of the participants. Welcome to the July 14th edition of the Tennessee World Affairs Council's Global News Review. I'm Patrick Ryan and happy Bastille Day to everybody. I'm joined by Ambassador Dick Bowers, uh, Dr. Breck Walker and special guest host, Dr. Tom Schwartz. Uh, the first thing we're going to do, uh, we've we've got everybody's bios on the uh, the website, so we're not going to go into that uh, quite so much. But I do want to mention that uh, uh, Professor Schwartz has uh, a a book coming out, and we're going to give uh, a, him a, a moment to uh, tell us uh, about that. Tom, congratulations on the book. Comes out uh, August twenty fifth. We're looking forward to uh, to reading that. Um, as uh, as the Amazon plug says, it's the definitive biography of Henry Kissinger uh, for those who neither revere nor revile him. And and I suppose that's a marketing uh, uh, plug, but uh, yeah. give us uh, a brief overview of, of uh, what we can expect in, in this book. There's There's been a few books on Kissinger. He's uh, <laughs> certainly um, uh, written uh, of himself uh, often. Yes, um, Kissinger wrote some 4,000 pages of memoirs himself. Um, the focus of my book is, uh, as the subtitle puts it, a political biography, and it's looking at Kissinger as an actor, a political actor. Um, and so the focus is really on the time he serves in office, although I do have a, a chapter at the end that talks about his long post-office um, career as well, in which he's uh, played a role. Um, sure. the, uh, the, the, central, the central point is to, to, to see him as a character who um, worked at uh, the, uh, the machinery of American foreign policy, but also understood the interrelationship between foreign policy and domestic politics, and understood the uh, importance, in a sense, of, of creating a foreign policy with that domestic support, both for um, his presidents, Nixon and Gerald Ford, but also, in a way, understanding the significance of, uh, of how uh, foreign policy and domestic policy or politics are intertwined. I had the benefit of uh, both having the, uh, a lot of new sources, the tapes, uh, the Richard Nixon uh, tapes that have all been released now, but also uh, the television archive, news archive at Vanderbilt to sort of record the way in which Kissinger became uh, something of a celebrity diplomat and became one of the most important figures in the administration, so much so that he, uh, one of the chapters deals with the fact that he was in effect president for foreign policy during the period of time in which Nixon uh, was uh, uh, preoccupied with Watergate. So I think it will be uh, an interesting biography. I tried to be balanced in my interpretation of, of Kissinger, uh, seeing both his strengths and weaknesses, but also recognizing in him one of the more uh, extraordinary uh, figures in the uh, exercise of American power in the 20th century. Well, we're looking forward to that. And uh, you and I have talked about uh, having you in for a Tuesday evening global dialogue session where uh, in, in conjunction with your booksellers, uh, we'll, we'll talk uh, in more detail uh, about the book and about uh, Henry Kissinger, certainly an interesting um, personality in American foreign policy. 
Uh, speaking of upcoming programs, I'd just like to remind everyone that we've put together a pretty good slate of, um, of programs for you. Here's uh, just a sampling of it. A reminder that every Tuesday we're here with the Global News Review. Um, Ambassador Dick Bowers and uh, Dr. Breck Walker and I with, uh, with our co-hosts uh, bring you uh, a review a context and background on the news every week. But we also have uh, Global Nashville with Carl Dean coming up uh, next week with Bob Rolf, the Commissioner of Economic and Community Development. Uh, and down the road, we have Admiral Bill, Bill Owens. Uh, he was Vice Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He's gonna talk about US-China. Uh, and we just uh, confirmed that uh, former Defense Secretary William Perry and Plowfares, Plowshares Fund Policy Director Tom Kalina will be with us uh, in August. And then down the road, uh, David Rundell will talk about Saudi Arabia at a crossroad. Uh, tonight, we have uh, Global Energy and the book Crude Oil, Crude Money with uh, Thomas Lipman, great friend of the World Affairs Council, a veteran journalist, uh, spent a lot of time at the Middle East Bureau of the Washington Post. Um, and he's going to talk about the, uh, his book and, and what's going on in the, uh, the energy sector. Uh, Dick, why don't you tell us what we're going to talk about today? Well, we've got our usual five topics. Pat, uh, we're going to do a COVID update. Uh, there's a lot going on, and uh, some famous people have said the worst is yet to come. Secondly, uh, we've got a U.S.-China Cold War. Has it already begun? Question. Uh, there's a lot happening between U.S.-China relationships, so we're going to dive into that. Third, Afghanistan, the U.S. Taliban negotiations, up, negotiations uptick, excuse me. And fourth, uh, Iran and China, wedding bells. Seems that the Chinese are wooing the Iranians and vice versa. And then find a topic that we may kind of dig in a little bit today, maybe in the future, because it is so timely and important. The end of the world order and American foreign policy. Is it time for a new way of doing things? When I read that, Dick, I was wondering if it was uh, the world order or the end of world order. Uh, the end of world order. Did I say the world order? Well, it, it, that's, it could be either one. It could be we'll, either uh, one, right? <laughs> we'll, we'll find out when we get to topic five. There are those who say the, uh, the world order has already ended now, but anyway, to, moving on. It could be. Uh, Breck, um, I, I think the uh, the names this week are a little kinder than last week. Let's let's go with the weekly quiz. Okay, thanks, Pat. I did want to mention before I give the quiz that uh, uh, there's also a weekly quiz that you can access on the website or via uh, the TenWAC newsletter that comes out every Monday at 10 a.m. And wanted to uh, remind everyone that there is a monthly prize for the best aggregate weekly scores, although you must be a TenWAC member to uh, claim that prize. And congratulations to... TINWAC member Jackie Sheridan, who won the June Prize, which was a copy of Richard Haas's book, The World, A Brief Introduction. So here's the question, Pat, for this week. Turkish President Tayyip Erdogan officially declared that this 1,500-year-old monument is a mosque and announced that the first Muslim prayers will begin there in two weeks. The, uh, the, muse the monument was converted to a museum by founding state statesman Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, but a top Turkish court ruled last week that the museum conversion was illegal. So is this 1,500-year-old monument the uh, Hagia Sophia, the Top Copy Palace, the Blue Mosque, or the Basilica Cistern? A, B, C, or D? And we'll give you the answer at the end of the program. All right, terrific. And um, 
again, Jackie Sheridan, uh, well done on the quiz, the weekly quiz and uh, winning the prize, uh, the June prize, that, that book. All right, uh, Dick, we're gonna uh, jump into the, the global COVID update. We haven't, uh, we skipped a week last week, but uh, I think it's worth mentioning uh, that uh, the, the numbers uh, are climbing uh, with increasing alarm, especially in places like Brazil, uh, the United States. Uh, you can see the chart on the right, the, the countries that are, are, are most impacted. Uh, the United States with I think about a quarter or a fourth of the world's population are pushing 25% uh, or so of uh, cases and deaths. Uh, you can see on, on the left-hand side the uh, increase in, in new cases. Uh, the numbers of deaths are down relative to the number of new cases, and that's probably attributable to the development of uh, some treatments which are saving uh, some lives of, of those who are uh, affected. Uh, Dick mentioned that uh, someone uh, recently said it was uh, getting worse and worse, and that was the Director General of the uh, World Health Organization. Uh, who uh, has been sounding the alarm uh, for a number of weeks now that the, the situation, <clears throat> excuse me, was worsening. And that's uh, Tedros uh, Ghebreyesus uh, at the World Health Organization. And, and as we know, uh, the United States, uh, uh, President Donald Trump has been critical of the WHO and uh, removed the United States uh, from that organization. Uh, but that, uh, pullout won't take effect until 2021. So we're technically still in, but we've sent uh, a, a, a signal to the WHO that we won't participate. And I think that we, we talked a little bit in the past about the WHO being uh, for many countries, the, uh, the center for- It's critical for, for many countries, Pat. It's the, it's the CDC for, for them and they take all of their scientific guidance from the WHO and this kind of going alone by the United States. You know, interestingly enough, I think it was several, what, two or three weeks ago when we, when we passed uh, the death toll that we had had in the Korean War. Um, and now we have passed, and then the Vietnam War, and now we have passed the death toll of U.S. forces in World War I. So 138,000 deaths so far in World War I, we had about 117,000 deaths. So this is a serious big bad problem. Right, and I think one, one thing that we haven't really uh, discussed here is uh, the international cooperation. And, and uh, I think talking about the WHO points up uh, to what the United States needs to be uh, thinking about is what, uh, what are we doing internationally to battle the pandemic other than watching everyone else's statistics? And when we do get drugs and vaccines, uh, how is that gonna be handled? What if China develops it and they say, well, uh, it's it's going to go to countries that are in the, the WHO first or, um, you know. I think most people are, you know, sort of talking that what should happen is it should go to the frontline medical personnel in the hotspot countries that are really having a big problem first. Right, right. But the question is across borders. Who's going to, uh, who's, who's going to be the referee to what countries get it? That is a huge problem. Because who's who's going to manufacture it? You know, we got eight, 8 billion people. So at a minimum, yeah. you're going to need 8 billion doses of it if, if it's a compound. And when you only get 300 million, who gets them coming right. off the line? That, that's right. It's going to be a, be a big problem. And the U.S. leadership is absent on the question. As far as you I know, know, I was listening to uh, a terrific uh, 
webinar by the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, a sister of, of the Tennessee World Affairs Council, and Richard Haas was being interviewed by Evo Dalder, and I, I recommend the Chicago Council uh, to anybody for their podcasts and webinars, but uh, they were talking about this issue, and Richard Haas made the point, what if, what if this uh, vaccine requires two or three uh, shots per, per person? That's you know, six, 16 billion doses of something or 24 billion doses. Uh, we need to be uh, working with, uh, with our partners, in, in my opinion. I'm with you. All right, um, enough of that. We're gonna go on to uh, topic number two, and that would be the, uh, the prospect for uh, the United States and China to uh, enter into what, what could be a Cold War. And, uh, professor Thomas Schwartz from Vanderbilt University, distinguished professor of history, uh, has that topic. Tom, you're up. Okay, I, um, uh, the, the slide that you had up there, Pat, was with um, uh, Graham Allison in his book, The Thucydides Trap. And uh, what uh, Allison had gotten at was, uh, and this book came out about three years ago, and he was talking about this idea that the United States and China might be facing, uh, might in effect uh, be destined for war. And uh, he quoted from the famous Greek historian Thucydides, who said it was the rise of Athens and the fear that instilled in Sparta that made war inevitable. And in the promotional um, ideas of the book, the emphasis was on the idea that China's uh, rise was now going to threaten the United States' position in the international system and create the possibility for conflict between the two. Um, Allison is a political scientist. He had totaled up cases in the past of where a hegemonic power was threatened by a rising power and came to the conclusion that in many cases, uh, war had broken out. Uh, as he put it, uh, in the 16 times that they studied it, uh, war broke out in 12. And the idea being that in effect, the uh, uh, China and the United States um, were approaching this sort of conflict with both Xi Jinping and Donald Trump promising to make their case their countries great again. And in effect, um, uh, this of course provoked a lot of thinking about whether in effect the United States and China were headed toward a new Cold War. Um, and that being the sort of operative analogy for many Americans. And so um, as, as someone who spent a lot of time thinking about the history of the Cold War and written on it, I decided to do this presentation in terms of that analogy, although it's not the only one. And in fact, many have made the case that the analogy between the United States and China, the better analogy is Britain and Germany before World War I. But in effect, I think the idea that there might be a Cold War developing between the United States and the Soviet Union has certainly been in the news greatly in the last few months. And certainly in the last few days, we've seen a number of actions which, would, uh, which have Cold War parallels. Let me quickly say something about the history of the first Cold War. Remembering, of course, that the United States and the Soviet Union were actually allies um, in World War II. Um, this was a brief moment of alliance. They were brought together by Adolf Hitler, um, who probably was the only person who could have brought the United States and the Soviet Union together. But that was, in effect, it was an alliance of convenience to defeat Nazi Germany. The problem was that the United States and the Soviet Union really did have fundamentally different understandings of the international order and of the proper, uh, and what a good society looked like. Um, after the war ended, the United States began perceiving Soviet behavior in Eastern Europe 
particularly the imposition of communist regimes on the Eastern European countries that have been liberated from Nazi rule, um, uh, uh, Soviet uh, efforts in the Eastern Mediterranean, in Iran, in Greece, and in Turkey as threatening a, a new domination. Uh, as being parallel in a sense to the type of conquest they had seen that had brought the United States into World War II. Um, for their part, the Soviet Union saw the United States as, as surrounding it with military bases, as possessing a monopoly on the atomic bomb, and in effect, from their ideology, being a capitalist country and threatening uh, Soviet communism, as they had done after World War I, when the United States sent a small expeditionary force to try to overthrow the Bolsheviks but also the idea that the Soviet Union in effect was threatened by capitalist countries like the United States and Britain. The domestic politics in both countries also stimulated conflict in that the uh, Soviet Union, Stalin's desire to crack down, uh, called for having an enemy abroad or at least being able to talk about threats abroad in order to clamp down on the Soviet population which had been given a greater, deal of, uh, greater degree of freedom during World War II. Um, from the United States point of view, uh, both the Republicans and the Democrats, uh, to a certain extent, saw an advantage in focusing on Soviet behavior in Eastern Europe. Uh, the uh, left wing of the Soviet, of the Democratic Party faded in political importance during this period, and to a certain extent, um, being tough on the Soviets, being hard on communists, uh, uh, became a, an effective political um, tool in the United States as well. That said, the fact that there were these uh, uh, issues should not obscure the fact that there were quite fundamental differences in vision between the United States and the Soviet Union um, after World War II, particularly over Europe and Germany, where the United States did believe, I think quite strongly, that the restoration of prosperity was the surest way to avoid war. Whereas the Soviet Union did, of course, think that that was not the case and that in fact, um, keeping Europe and particularly Germany weak was one of the things that was necessary. The other point about the post-World War II culture in the United States was it was one that had been unified in effect by the experience of World War II and that in the political culture of the time, the United States and the Soviet Union were much closer or the United States, the, the United States' political um, culture was, was far less polarized over issues than it was than, than more recently we've seen in the United States today. Um, this type of unity and I think belief in the government was one of the things that uh, certainly um, uh, facilitated uh, the uh, launching of a uh, Cold War policy of containment with the Soviet Union. Now having said that, and I know I'm, I'm already gone past my time or going close to my time, let me just say a little bit about the possibility of a Cold War with China. Uh, the United States and China had been de facto allies during, world, uh, during part of the Cold War, although they had fought early in the Cold War. It's necessary to remember that. The United States actually fought China in Korea and then fought a Chinese ally, Vietnam, um, so that we actually had conflict, but that toward the end of the Cold War, in the late 70s and 80s, China was a de facto ally. The United States had been committed to integrating China into the liberal world order, but in the last 10 years, particularly as provoked by the financial crisis, we've seen the emergence of China's arrival to the United States and to China's beginning to see the United States as seeking to contain it and prevent the emergence of China as a power in the world. From the United States' point of view, particularly in the last few years, the perception of China as a rival, um, its role in cyber warfare, in the theft of intellectual property and trade manipulation, 
all of that has soured the image of China in the United States so that now you have almost two thirds of Americans in a recent Pew poll seeing China as an enemy or a rival. Um, there are great differences from the original Cold War. The economic integration of the United States the Soviet, and China are so different from the, uh, the situation of the United States and uh, uh, the Soviet Union. We had almost no economic connection to the Soviet Union, whereas with China, we have a billions in trade, 700 billion more recently. We have hundreds of thousands of students who have exchanged in a way that, and, and popular people exchanges that have uh, shaped this relationship also. Um, there are though many issues uh, between the United States and the Soviet Union. Just yesterday, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo made a very strong statement about American rights uh, to navigation or international rights to navigation in the South China Sea. This is something that of course was discussed last week in the uh, webinar. Um, there are the issues of Taiwan, the independence of Taiwan from China. Uh, that's a, a very important issue for China. There's been continuing argument about the treatment of Hong Kong in more recent times and the enactment of a national security law and the treatment of the Uyghurs in the western part of China uh, that has been seen as a human rights violation. Having said all that, of course, the United States at this point um, in its politics at home is so polarized and divided that the idea of a unifying external threat seems hard to believe. Most both sides will blame the other, and there doesn't seem the idea that there could be national unity uh, about opposing China's policies during this time. So while we seem to be heading into a type of Cold War or confrontation with China, I think the most important thing, and let me conclude with this, is the idea that as much as there may be a type of enmity with China, the central point of leadership in the next few years will be to keep that Cold War from becoming a military or a wider political struggle than it need be. Um, in effect, the, the first Cold War uh, might have been limited to European issues, but then expanded worldwide um, with the Korean War and other issues. And in this case, it might be possible to limit the Cold War, limit this confrontation with China. And that would be, I think, the real test of American leadership in the coming years. Tom, that, that was terrific. Um, I'm sorry I, I went over a little bit. No, 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 no. We're, we're, uh, we're open-ended here. We'll go as mm -hmm. long as you guys are ready mm -hmm. to talk. Um, <laughs> Be careful with that, Beth. <laughs> that, that is very dangerous. <laughs> very dangerous. Tom, a question? Yes, sir. Uh, Tom, do you think that the uh, Secretary of State Pompeo's declaration that China's in violation of international law and is a rogue nation and what it's trying to do territorially in terms of its or in terms of its maritime rights, is that a propaganda tactic or is that something more substantive? And if it is something more substantive, what are the risks of incidents, even conflict over this in the near term? It seems to me this is substantive. Um, clearly, obviously, Pompeo is a China hawk. Um, no question there. Um, I do think it raises the stakes in the South China Sea. I'm kind of, I'd be willing really on this one to defer a bit to Pat, um, who knows something about this from personal experience. Um, uh, but I do think the danger of an incident happening um, and the situation of the United States, there is, I think, pretty uh, significant. I, I think what, what strikes me is why it's a bit more than the propaganda is simply the idea that the United States had really held off making any uh, determination on that. We had stood back on territorial issues 
claiming our neutrality and that and to, to, to take as strong a stance um, on this and then now to try to rally other Asian countries, this seems to me to be a, an important change in American policy. I don't know whether this, again, you know, we are in a, an unusual situation with the 2020 election approaching. Um, there is a story today in the Wall Street Journal of an interview with Walter Russell Mead with one of uh, Joe Biden's top political advisors where it's clear that the Biden argument will be, we are gonna go back on policy. We are, we're gonna basically stop what Trump has done. So it may well be that this will not stand if, if there is a change in leadership in the United States. On the other hand, um, the one thing about the South China Sea issue that's interesting is that the United States really does have international law on its side. And it does have the arguments, a stronger case for rallying allies in this case than it does in some of the other areas where it's been more unilateral. Yeah, I would, agree with, I would agree with that, Tom. Uh, Dick, if I could just uh, throw a, a South China Sea comment in here. Uh, but in, in uh, the case of the South China Sea, I think China has facts on the ground or on the water in their favor. They've already built up these islands and militarized them, and they're not going home. So no matter what we say about them or steam around them or fly over them, uh, they've got bombers and fighters and air defense systems uh, deployed throughout the South China Sea. Uh, much further from their homeland than than is warranted under international law, but they're not going anywhere. In terms of uh, analogies with the Cold War, I think it's interesting that uh, the United States and the Soviet Union had a number of incidents uh, involving our navies, collisions, and so forth, when uh, when people got uh, a little provocative in the North Atlantic and other places, and it resulted in, I believe it was the early 1970s, uh, an agreement between the two powers called the Incidents at Sea Agreement, and that governed from there on uh, the conduct of the two navies and militaries in proximity to one another. It provided for signals, uh, you know, the, the to uh, eliminate any language problems. You could fly a certain signal flag or uh, pass a signal in Morse code and, and it would mean a certain thing. Uh, stay away or I'm, I'm flying aircraft, I've got the right of way, uh, these, these sorts of things. It also provided for the distances that you could fly or approach other ships. So it, it, uh, it cooled off the provocative actions. In the case of the United States and China in the South China Sea, there's none of that. The Chinese, uh, whether it's military units, their Coast Guard, or a, a militarized uh, merchant marine, uh, they are behaving uh, frequently in provocative ways. When we fly aircraft in the, uh, those parts of the world, even in international airspace, uh, Chinese fighters come up and they get uh, too close. Um, and uh, we've seen that there's been incidents. So uh, the, uh, the scene is set for provocative action leading uh, to uh, unknown consequences. I'm sorry, go ahead, Dick. No, I just jump in and I think it's uh, substantive as well. This is a major policy statement on the part of the U.S. government. Uh, I would assume, but uh, uh, you know, given the way these guys play foreign policy, I'm not sure, but I assume this was all coordinated with our friends and allies. So the Philippines, Vietnam, Malaysia, Brunei, all these people are on board. And this could be seen as a red line, i.e. what you've done, China is wrong. We, we have the statement as I saw I read it really harkens back to the arbitration decision by the court in The Hague uh, I think 2016 and law of the sea it's pretty it's absolutely clear that what the Chinese are doing is 
illegal. They have unilaterally said, this is ours, we're gonna take it, we're gonna do what we want with it. But back to Pat's point, they're there. What are we gonna do about it? And right. that's a thorny issue. Yep, beginning, uh, beginning of the, uh, the end of the first chapter, I think. We'll see how that goes. Uh, Tom, Tom, let me uh, toss a, a question in, if I could. Uh, drawing on analogies of the Cold War and the containment of the Soviet Union, uh, what what do you see ahead for the United States in terms of, of building a containment of China's expansion? Um, Breck uh, talked uh, exquisitely about the China-India confrontation and what that might lead to, and possibly driving India into America's arms if it were not already there. And then we're looking at Australia, Japan, Philippines is an erstwhile ally, uh, but uh, Vietnam could become closer to the United States, uh, and they all ring uh, China, and China backs up to Russia. Uh, they're they're talking nicely to one another, but there's there's some issues there. Yeah, I, the, the difference, I think, is that in military terms, China's expansionist uh, efforts are really quite different from the Soviets. Uh, they, they have tended to focus on uh, the particular areas. Hong Kong, Taiwan is probably the most dangerous one. Uh, they do still have, you could make the case, they still have an empire in their control of Xinjiang and Tibet. But outside of that, they don't have specific territorial claims that are huge. I mean, the India issue is, is complicated, but it, I, I don't think anyone thinks that China is intending to invade or that there would be a military conflict in the same way as you had the sort of fold the gap and the idea sure. that the Soviets could march to, to the sea. So I think China's, the, the issue of China's power is the sort of coerciveness of their diplomacy, their naval power, their, their, the, the sense that China is trying to dictate to other nations how they should behave, the terms of trade, the the ways, um, the, the, the ways in which uh, they want uh, them to, uh, to borrow a term, kowtow to them. Um, that sort of notion is out there. I, and I do think, I, I think in this sense, the United States could play a role in coordinating a, a type of resistance to China that might encourage a certain moderation among the Chinese leadership. Uh, this is, some of this is new in the sense that the China, before Xi Jinping, had behaved rather res with restraint on a lot of these questions. And so it's not clear to me that there's a total consensus in the Politburo behind some of these techniques and some of this behavior. And perhaps um, a inter-allied or an allied coalition could encourage some second thoughts among Chinese leadership. But that would require really some very uh, deft diplomacy, which um, is not necessarily the strength of the United States these days. Right. Yeah, I, I uh, suppose in terms of uh, the Cold War, a military expansion uh, analogy is uh, is inappropriate, and, and that may lead us to trying to find a new name for the new Cold War so that we're yes. not misled. Yes. Well, that's a fantastic review. Thanks, Tom, for that. And we're going to turn to uh, to Breck Walker here in, in just a second. But I wanted to remind everybody that uh, the Tennessee World Affairs Council is uh, currently in a membership month drive, and we encourage everyone to uh, join the World Affairs Council. That's how we uh, pay the light bill here. We're a nonprofit, nonpartisan uh, educational organization. Uh, we are uh, recognized by the IRS as a uh, 501c3 tax-exempt organization. So. Uh, uh, with that and the uh, the CARES Act, there's some tax 
consequences to a donation to this trip, this charity. Uh, so please uh, consider becoming a member or uh, making a gift. You can do that at tnwac.org. And I'll just remind you the quality of the programming that uh, we're bringing you. If you uh, wanted to get uh, Ambassador Bowers and Dr. Walker and Dr. Schwartz together to consult or uh, to uh, collaborate with you, uh, that would cost you a, a pretty penny, and and, and <laughs> they, they don't they don't come easy. Uh, let me tell you. Uh, so uh, I think you can recognize the quality of the programming we're putting on. If you look at the calendar ahead with uh, Admiral Owen and Secretary of Defense Perry and some of the speakers we've had in the past, uh, we're we're doing um, a great deal here to bring you some uh, pretty important uh, global awareness programs. So I'll leave it at that. Just take a look. TNWAC. Dot org to uh, become a member of the council or uh, to, to make your, your gift there. Uh, Breck, um, you're up, sir. Thanks, Pat. Um, my topic today is uh, the Taliban negotiations uh, with the United States and hopefully down the road with the Afghan government to end the war in Afghanistan. We've been in Afghanistan fighting the Taliban now for almost 20 years. Uh, it is our longest war. Uh, it has become the American albatross, and the costs have been significant. There have been 2,400 U.S. soldiers that have been killed uh, and over 20,000 wounded. There's been another one th more than 1,000 coalition forces killed. There have been tens of thousands of Afghans killed during this uh, almost 20-year war. And uh, estimates are that there are 2.5 million Afghan refugees worldwide. So the cost of this, and in addition, from a treasure standpoint, the United States has spent over $2 trillion in both fighting this war and in giving aid to Afghanistan, trying to uh, rebuild the country into something that is uh, uh, able to uh, continue in a democratic, relatively free market way. Uh, over the past year or so, though, the Trump administration has reached out to the Taliban to see if an agreement could be reached that would allow the U.S. to bring its troops home and a sort of agreement was reached in February, and that's the topic that I'm gonna very briefly uh, cover today. But if it's okay, I would like to take just a minute and uh, very briefly talk again for those who may not be totally up to speed on it, who the Taliban uh, are. They are a hardline Sunni fundamentalist group that took over the government of Afghanistan during the period 1996 to 2001. Uh, they imposed a very austere version of Sharia law on the country, which included uh, significant regimentation of lifestyles, minimal rights for women, for example, no education for women past the age of 10. Uh, they outlawed TV, most TV, music, and cinema, and they, have, they imposed very harsh punishments for behavioral kinds of uh, crimes. The Taliban emerged in the early 1990s after the Soviets withdrew from Afghanistan, and many of the Taliban were former Mujahideen who uh, were assisted by the CIA and the Pakistani uh, security forces in fomenting that insurgency against the Russian occupation in the 1980s. And after the Russians left Afghanistan, the situation there was chaotic. There were regional fiefdoms and warlord fighting warlord and uh, no effective centralized government. There was rampant corruption. There were human rights abuses. I mean, it was a mess for ordinary Afghans. And the Taliban, as a group, promised security and stability. And as they extended their influence over Afghanistan, I think most people would say that they delivered in those two areas relative to what had been the case before. 
and their support in the country became reasonably significant such that they were able to seize government control, as I said, in 1996. Now, from 96 to 2001, they were an outlaw government, uh, one that the West did not recognize, complained about, but largely left alone. They did provide sanctuary to various terrorist groups, including Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, who, of course, masterminded the attack on uh, the U.S. on 9-11, killing almost 3,000 people. When that, after that happened, uh, the U.S. demanded that the Afghan government, the Taliban, turn over Osama bin Laden, and uh, the Taliban refused to do that. So the U.S. Uh, invaded in October 2001, and the Taliban, uh, Taliban regime collapsed by the end of the year, mostly retreating into Pakistan to live and fight uh, another day. Now, under the direction of the U.S., the, a new Afghan government was voted into power in 2004, and the Taliban began a long insurgency against that government and against its main supporter, uh, the United States. Now, over the last 18 years, and particularly over the last five or six, the Taliban has slowly regained much influence in Afghanistan, and it's, uh, it's, uh, there are lots of answers as to why that has been the case. In a general sense, my answer would be that the Taliban are religious zealots uh, who do not give up and were willing to wait uh, to bide their time in order to outlast uh, U.S.-led coalition forces. They had support, meaningful support from Pakistan, and more recently, some level of support from Russia. And they are a very well-funded group with revenues from drug trade and, and uh, other sources. And they were fortunate in their opponents in that the Afghan government has never been very strong. It's full of tribal division. It's corrupt. And it's never, gained it's never gained widespread public support. And NATO military forces, including the United States, grew tired of their both military and monetary uh, commitments, such that in 2014, which was the bloodiest year in Afghanistan fighting since 2001, 14 years into the war, US-led NATO forces formally officially ended their combat mission and passed on security responsibilities to the Afghan army and the Afghan police. However, there were roughly 17,000 NATO troops, including roughly 12,000 US uh, troops that stayed in country, stayed in Afghanistan to train, advise, and assist uh, Afghan security forces. Still, the American effort there, I would say, has been fairly half-hearted for a decade. President Obama wanted out and announced a long, uh, a long timeline, announced not a long timeline, but a timeline to withdraw the military, uh, which certainly gave tactical advantage to the Taliban. And President Trump, uh, in his presidential campaign, one of his main pledges was to end the war in Afghanistan, get our troops out of there. And here we are today, hoping to make the best of a bad uh, situation. Now, the basic understanding of the uh, uh, between the Taliban and the United States reached in February is this, essentially, that the Taliban would reduce their attacks immediately on Afghan and U.S. troops, that uh, as a good faith measure, the, the U.S. would withdraw some of its 12,000 troops that are there right now, that the Afghan government and the Taliban would have a prisoner exchange uh, as a good faith measure between themselves, and that the Taliban would enter into intra-Afghan negotiations with the government. And they actually had their first meeting on March 20th. And the hope was, from the United States perspective, 
that those negotiations, which undoubtedly would be carried out over a significant, significant period of time, would result in some compromises that would uh, allow the Taliban on some basis to share in, uh, in the government going forward. Eventually, the U.S. would withdraw all its troops in return for the Taliban reaching that workable agreement with the Afghan government, and as well uh, promising not to provide any safe havens for terrorists going forward. Now, this peace process, <coughs> excuse me, has hit some bumps very recently. The prisoner swap was partially carried out, but has hit a stalemate right now. There is an issue that we talked about last week over Russian uh, bounties uh, that is uh, a political issue in the U.S., uh, for sure. And that the violence that the Taliban promised to reduce has not reduced all that much since February 20th. In fact, over the last day or two, the Taliban has, it's been reported that the Taliban has killed some 25 uh, Afghan government security people. So what's the likely uh, outcome here? Well, in my mind, the American best case, what they're hoping for is a new power sharing a government would be, a power sharing government would be established. That the Taliban would be disarmed and in some way reintegrated into Afghan, Afghan society. That there'd be a new political environment that would be somewhat democratic and something short of an Islamic state. And there would be human rights protections, especially the rights of women. But American nation building efforts over the last uh, 18 years have, in Afghanistan have been, in my mind, largely a failure. And domestic political support for continuing those efforts has been in a steep decline for some time. Couple that with the fact that the Taliban is stronger than at any time, most people say, at any time since the US invaded. It has some 60,000 fighters, they're well-funded, they have a significant geographical presence, they have lots of support among many Afghans, uh, and, and compromise is not the Taliban's strong suit. So the U.S. does have some leverage. The Taliban does not want to be internationally isolated. It does, not, it does need external aid and assistance, and it certainly wants the U.S. military to leave. But the big question is, <laughs> in my mind, are these talks between the Taliban and the United States cover for an American withdrawal, sort of damn the consequences, or will the U.S. use the prospect of withdrawal uh, and the ability to stay to really muscle the Taliban into a substantive peace agreement with the Afghan government that will end up having something for, for everyone, that will be a workable solution. Now, President Trump says, quote, if bad things happen, we'll go back with a force like no one's ever seen. Uh, but I'm far from sure that we have the fortitude to stay the course and try to do what it takes to get the Taliban to negotiate. And I'm far from sure that even if we did, that that would be successful. Time and tactical advantage seems very much to be on the Taliban side and, again, and against the United States. So I think that there are two likely outcomes and both bad from our perspective and from the perspective of many Afghanis to be sure. Either the Taliban regains political control and reimposes an Islamic state, or the country returns to the chaos following the Russian withdrawal. It's a failed state. It becomes a failed state on the order of Libya with no effective centralized government. In, any case, in either case, it seems like there'd be greater risk of regional war. Afghan Afghanistan would again become a haven for terrorists. There'd be a humanitarian crisis leading to even more refugees and it'd be another blow to U.S. credibility uh, as an ally. So Pat, sorry to be so pessimistic about it, but I'm pretty pessimistic about what's going on over there. 
Well, that's that's understandable, and I think uh, we probably share a lot of that pessimism, uh, because as as you pointed out, the the Taliban is uh, is not a credible partner uh, when you look at uh, what their basic uh, goals and objectives are. Um, any of you two have any uh, questions for for Breck on this? Think, I would think one thing that's interesting on this one is that we know from uh, some of the Obama era memoirs that Joe Biden is is someone who wants out of Afghanistan right. as well, but then was much more interested. So, in effect, uh, there's not a uh, both both of the the major candidates want out. So, uh, your pessimism, it seems to me, Breck is very well justified. Biden had the famous uh, whack-a-mole strategy towards terror terrorist enclaves, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, I, I think uh, it's it's fair to say that uh, the negotiations have have been troublesome. There was mm -hmm. the effort to bring the Taliban to Camp David last 9/11. Uh, that that didn't go so well, and and yeah. and now the bounty being accepted by the Taliban. You have to wonder why the Taliban, if they're negotiating in good faith, which it doesn't sound like they are, they're accepting money from the uh, the Russian GRU to kill Americans. It, Maybe they thought they would get away with it, uh, but it appears, um, I, I don't see how this negotiation is going to uh, be conclusive. Uh, uh, Breck, the, the uh, Afghan government was uh, was set aside as negotiations were going on in Doha. Uh, Zalmay Khalilazad, the former ambassador to Afghanistan, is a skilled negotiator, but this may be a bridge too far. Well, and there's, you know, I wonder, there'll be p political pressure on Trump, I think, maybe not pressure, but he may think it's a politically advantageous move to start the withdrawal in meaningful ways before the election. Uh, we'll see. Well, Clear victory and come home. Right. Unfortunately, Al-Qaeda and ISIS uh, will be uh, filling, filling in the ranks uh, in Afghanistan, and the Taliban will, uh, in my view, not, uh, not accept the Afghan government as legitimate. And uh, we could be back to where we were 19 years ago. All right. Uh, well, thank you for that. Moving on, we're going to uh, talk a little bit about uh, Iran and China. It seems, uh, Dick, we're we're spending a lot of time talking about China lately. I I don't know what uh, what to make of that, but uh, yeah, I was thinking we need to need to do something in South America next week. We'll get all right. There. You're 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 on you're on tap for uh, South America. But let's uh, let's talk about an Wedding agreement bills. an agreement between Iran and. Um, uh, China uh, recently revealed uh, that there's a, uh, a very large document that was circulated uh, between the two and they've come to agreement uh, about. It hasn't been formally approved, but basically is a 25-year uh, cooperation agreement between Beijing and Tehran, uh, which involves uh, uh, trade, investment, uh, military cooperation, Iranian discounts uh, on oil. Iran uh, has supplied in the past oil to uh, to China. Uh, China relies on uh, imports for about 75% of their energy demand. So having uh, Iran as a partner in energy supplies is important to China. And I, I think this is also important strategically in the geostrategic uh, context uh, that uh, China, it, who had uh, avoided the Persian Gulf um, for decades while they, they uh, watched the United States go from crisis to crisis and build a footprint there. Uh, they're now uh, establishing their own military, economic, political 
connections uh, with the Persian Gulf, the North Arabian Sea, and, and that uh, part of the world. They have, uh, uh, as you know, uh, Dick, uh, built a uh, Belt and Road project, the, the New Silk Road, which crosses uh, Central Asia across the landmass and into Iran. Uh, but they've also uh, developed uh, the String of Pearls uh, maritime bases in Sri Lanka and Pakistan. Uh, so now they'll they'll have uh, uh, presence uh, in Iran. And this this has been uh, kind of a troubling blow to the the Trump administration's maximum pressure campaign, which uh, Secretary Pompeo set out after the Trump administration left the Iran nuclear deal, the the JCPOA. And he outlined, I think it was a dozen or a, a baker's dozen of, of points that Iran had to uh, live up to uh, to get back on uh, the good side of the United States in terms of, of sanctions, relief, and, and so forth. Uh, but in response to that maximum pressure campaign, Iran uh, had their own un, unnamed uh, but uh, similar campaign of, of maximum resistance that uh, they were not going to uh, kowtow, as, as uh, uh, Tom said earlier, using that phrase, uh, they weren't going to kowtow to the United States and, and push back. And we saw a military conflict erupt in January when the United States uh, killed Qasem Soleimani in Iraq, and then um, the uh, Iranians attacked uh, bases in, in northern Iraq with, with very heavy surface-to-surface uh, -surface missiles. So, um, you know, we've, we've got this conflict going on with Iran. Um, sometimes it's uh, actual uh, uh, exchanging of, uh, of weapons uh, at one another. And most of the time it's rhetorical and economic sanctions and, and so forth. But uh, clearly uh, that, that uh, has led Iran into this uh, decision to embrace China in, uh, in a major way that, that really extends the flashpoint of Iran and, and China now into the Persian Gulf. So uh, this is um, uh, a, I think a significant development and we're gonna really have to watch uh, what, what this means in the future in terms of Chinese investment, military cooperation. Uh, are they going to base uh, Chinese ships in, the, in Iran and, and Persian Gulf waters like the United States has based the, uh, uh, the Fifth Fleet in uh, the Persian Gulf? Uh, are they going to be testing weapons, selling arms to Iran, et cetera, et cetera? So um, this is the opening chapter of, of a new book. Mm. You Anybody? Know, what, what, what were the options that Iran had? I mean, I, you know, we, we and the Europeans basically have been trying to isolate Iran for a very, very long time, decades. Um, I would think, you know, the Iranians are reaching out and the Chinese are reaching out. And this is not just a, an isolated incident on the part of the Chinese. They're making these kinds of arrangements and deals all over the world, including buying land to grow soybeans in Brazil. I mean, it's, it's a, a Chinese projection of influence all around the world. This is sure. a particularly sensitive one, though, because I think uh, aligning with Iran is really tweaking the United States at, at a point of, of uh, uh, given, given the American position in the Middle East, even if that is in a process of retrenchment, it's still a very important, vital American interest, Persian Gulf Absolutely. and the rest. So this is, uh, this is quite, a, it's quite a statement of China's. Uh, it, it actually is one of those things that reminded me of the Cold War, uh, namely the idea that, you know, if you're whoever, uh, allies play off each other 
you play the, the different sides and Iran has now uh, basically become, uh, or would through this become a Chinese ally of sorts. The Iranian card. Yep. Okay. Well, well you know, let... there was just one last point. The, yep. the part of the Belt and Road, uh, the Chinese are building a huge port in Pakistan. And, you know, going through Iran, into Pakistan, into China, um, they're geopolitically managing what they're out about. So it's an interesting, and as you say, Tom, I think it's a big deal. Well, it's not just the port in, uh, in Pakistan, but that port is at the end of a rail line that's being run from China through uh, uh, all the countries that uh, make the connection between the two. And there'll right. be a major rail corridor as well as a maritime port for uh, Chinese shipping. So uh, it, it wouldn't uh, take much to extend that rail line into Iran and, right. and connect the Belt and Road from, from a southern, uh, the southern belly of, uh, of Asia. Uh, yeah, we, we've already seen China build a, uh, a military base in Djibouti in the, the Horn of Africa. So uh, all across the Indian Ocean, including uh, Sri Lanka, they've got a base there. Um, and I think we talked a little bit about how they approach some of these issues, offering large loans that uh, carry uh, incredible uh, repayment uh, options. And, and then they leverage uh, when, when those loans can't be repaid. Uh, they leverage uh, those countries into other concessions. So uh, it's, it's one more notch on the belt of, uh, of China, not military expansion, Tom, but uh, the economic and, and political influence and, and dominance of, of some of these relationships. It's interesting that um, in nothing that you had mentioned with the negotiations with Iran, was there any mention of the rights of the Uyghurs as fellow Muslims? Um, you, know, you would have thought in the, the Iranians uh, could have been seen as, as wanting to push uh, something along those lines, given the nature of their regime. But, uh, you know, international politics is quite cynical in the end, and uh, relationships uh, don't necessarily have to do with values and or religious belief. The Islamic world has been uh, crickets on the Uyghurs. Um, yes. The organization yeah. of the Islamic Conference, which is based in Saudi Arabia, um, diplomats from all of the Islamic countries, uh, they're talking with the Chinese as if they never heard the word Uyghur. Uh, so that, you're right, that is that is uh, startling uh, and it uh, is indicative of, of the real politic that uh, is going on between, between those countries. All right, we have uh, a, a weighty topic that we're going to, uh, to jump to now and <laughs> This is, uh, we, are, we are launching a, a serialization of um, a report that hit our desks uh, recently. The End of World Order in American Foreign Policy, uh, a special report from the Council on Foreign Relations. And that uh, was authored by Robert D. Blackwell and Thomas Wright. Um, I've met uh, Mr. Wright at um, uh, the Carnegie, uh, I believe it, it was the Carnegie think tank. Uh, and Dick, you know uh, Mr. Blackwell from uh, Diplomat Days? Yeah, Bob Blackwell and, uh, and I and 67 other uh, wannabe foreign service officers were sworn in in June of 1967. So he and I were in the same foreign service basic oh. officers class. 
Well, it's, and it's, his career went one way and mine went the other, and he's still at it, and I'm sort of <laughs> at it here in Tennessee, but not nearly as vigorously as he seems to be. Oh, I, I think you're making more waves uh, in, uh, in passing along your wisdom than, than he is, but uh, be, be that as it may. We're going, we're going to talk about this topic uh, today for a little bit to introduce it and then uh, pick it up in uh, some future news reviews. And, and Breck is going to start us off with uh, uh, his, his interpretation of just a piece of it. Oh, uh, right. Thanks, Pat. And again, as you mentioned, this is a really lengthy 40 plus page big idea report put out by two, the two experts that Pat mentioned uh, associated with the Council of Foreign Relations. And, and, and this report, it does, I think, three things. It, it outlines the world order that uh, was in place throughout the 90s that would have been under the uh, watch of George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton. Uh, it was sort of a unilateral world order. The Cold War was over, the Soviet Union had fallen apart, and, uh, and the U.S. was economically and militarily far and away the most powerful uh, country in the world, nation in the world, and that imposed a certain order on the world that made the 90s a particularly stable and peaceful time, relatively speaking. And this report goes on to talk about why that world order went away in the early 2000s to be replaced by something that not only is much more chaotic with the rise of China and the resurgence of Russia and a whole host of other factors that they talk about, so not only more chaotic, uh, but perhaps a world order that none of us have been around in our lifetimes, uh, even going back to uh, Cold War days where there was this huge bipolarity that Tom talked about earlier. Anyway, uh, when he's describing where, when, when, the, when the authors are describing where we are today, they use this particular sentence that I think Pat has up there, and it goes like this, uh, Quote, China and Russia in particular defend a Westphalian and 19th century model of order organized around balance of power, national sovereignty, uh, spheres of influence. They oppose the U.S. model of humanitarian intervention, democracy, promotion, strengthened alliances, and opposition to spheres of influence. So put, I guess, in my words, the authors are saying that Russia, China, and some of the other, the BRICS, if you will, some of them, that, uh, that they have a order model today that is one of extreme nationalism, muscular foreign policy tied to national interest, and very much imposed spheres of influence. And they're saying that the U.S. model is more one of the U.S. and its allies' um, concern for uh, uh, human rights and democracy, strengthened alliances, multilateral collaboration, and opposition to impose spheres of influence. And I guess my question to Tom, if he doesn't mind, uh, to start off is, uh, is this a fair uh, contrasting by these authors, or is what, the re is what really the, and I think China and Russia might accuse us of this, the U.S., is what really uh, the U.S. has stood for in the post-Cold War period is something very similar to Russia and China. We just cloak it in, uh, we cloak our policy of real politic uh, in something that has all these fine uh, notions of human rights and so forth. But if you get down and take uh, a look at our policies closely, we are not so much different from they are. Our tactics may be different, but we're not so much in terms of seeking out our own national interest. Are we, mu are we much different from the bad guys? Well, I think you know, I, I take your point. I do think the, the similarity with China and Russia is that they're both revisionist powers now. They're, they're powers that are unhappy 
with the world order as it was set by the United States. I think in defense of the United States, I'd say that the American uh, attempt, um, at least built on the idea that uh, a bigger pie had portions for everyone, in the sense that the American promotion of a multilateral world system, yes, it served American interests, but it also served the interests, for example, of, um, um, you know, uh, of a very, uh, uh, of um, it, China's economic development, for example, occurred within that American-led system, uh, within that American trading block. So that, in a sense, the United States did promote policies that were had more uh, uh, elements of the common good uh, than might have been the case if the United States had pursued a more nationalist American first policy uh, of the sort that we seem to be retrenching to as a response to some of these, uh, some of the things that have happened in globalization and some of the political changes within the United States. So I, I do, I, I mean, in a way, the United States uh, right now, its rhetoric about sovereignty and about other things is actually more similar to some of the, the rhetoric of China and Russia. And our skepticism, our, we have under the Trump administration, expressed greater skepticism toward the multilateral institutions we had put in place. So in a way, you know, I, I do, I, I see that, but I also see, I also see what's happened is, has been a change in American domestic politics that have made some of the international institutions and to a certain extent, what I see is both enlightened self-interest and, and a, a more generous view of what could be the global commons has come under uh, attack in the United States for what is the perception that America has been taken advantage of. And that is something that's yeah, obviously identified with President Trump, but not. Uh, it's also um, Bernie Sanders and the left of the Democratic Party also have a lot of that feeling as well. I think uh, we're, we're going to come to a, a point here in American domestic politics that uh, trying to effectively cobble together a foreign policy is is going to be a difficult undertaking, a, a strategic uh, approach to a, a long-term American goal uh, in the world to to uh, uh, protect our vital interests uh, with the way politics is going. Uh, it, it's going to be a struggle for whoever's the president. I think you're absolutely right, Pat, because it, it, an effective foreign policy begins with an effective, coherent domestic policy. Yeah. This is what we stand for. These are our values. These are the things we're trying to do around the world. And right now we're so fragmented and splintered, I agree with you that it's going to be hard, regardless of what happens in the upcoming election, to approach the world in a coherent manner. Maybe some of these things are going to be forced. If the death toll keeps going with COVID and uh, people decide, hey, we really do need to work together in the world. We can't go this alone. Uh, it might make it easier, but it's going to be a very difficult road to hoe. For sure. And also, I wonder if the sort of, as they make in this uh, article, as they uh, make the point that uh, as we become, for the moment at least, a less rules-based global order, I wonder if some of that is not because through the last two administrations, no offense to anybody, but the Obama administration and the Trump administration, uh, neither one had an interest in American leadership uh, among our alliance systems in the forefront. We were uh, leading from behind in the Obama administration, perhaps generalizing and, and leading just for ourselves in the Trump administration. And maybe that has resulted in more chaos out there, more leadership 
taking uh, chances, risks that they wouldn't if we'd had different leadership from the get-go uh, of our alliances and so oh, forth. I absolutely right. I mean, if you're if you're a German or you're a Japanese or you're a, a Indian, can you trust the United States today? Do you want to put all your eggs in the U.S. basket and say, "Hey, these guys are our our tried and true allies. They'll be there for us when things go bad." So the world's going to be looking at how you organize yourself in your own country in a different way than I think happened in the past decades. I do think, I do think the, uh, uh, the tendency has been a bipartisan one in the sense that uh, President Obama spoke about nation building at home, President Trump, the whole idea of America first. And I do think this retrenchment from international leadership also reflects uh, the unwillingness or the inability of our leaders to make a case for why international involvement and engagement actually is in the American interest. Yeah. Some of that happened as a result of the costs of uh, the post-9-11 uh, post wars, which soured people on this whole idea that, of the United States being involved and um, the, the unsatisfactory. But it, it's, it's also, I think, uh, I, I do think we have a reassertion of some of the older in American history. Uh, I, I don't want to get, isolationism is a little bit too strong, but a, a retrenchment from the idea that the United States really should lead the world or, or has that confidence. One of the points I made in my presentation is that I do think one of the things about the first Cold War was that it was coming out of the post-World War II experience when Americans had been abroad had fought abroad, had, you know, thought millions of Americans had had that experience. That's not the same anymore. We don't have that type of national unifying experience to give a political weight to the support for internationalist objectives. And I think that has led to a, a, a real decline in the desire to, to do it. Well, that, that, that gets down to the, to the point of leadership. Yes. I mean, the leadership needs to define what our goals and objectives are. What do we stand for? What are we willing to fight for? What don't we care about? And then going to have to express that to the, to the populace so that there is encouragement. I mean, it's, 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 it's so simple as leadership. If leadership started wearing a mask back in March, we'd be in a very different position. I mean, it's, it's, it's ludicrous that I have to say this, but I am certain we would be in a very different position on the death toll than we are today. I, I agree, Dick, but that's a different pod, a different uh, webinar. Leadership <laughs> um, is, the, is the not mask, okay. I, I, I think it's fair to say that uh, we can agree with the uh, international community uh, that uh, on, the, on the point of uh, American exceptional exceptionalism in leadership. I think uh, uh, America is divided on whether that's a true statement in terms yeah. of our leadership and uh, our foreign uh, uh, allies and partners uh, are equally concerned about American exceptionalism when it comes to leadership. Well, Breck, uh, thanks for introducing that uh, topic. We're gonna be taking up some more of that report and uh, we have a, kind of a tease for, uh, for everybody. I, I, I think we were gonna talk about um, interest uh, in the report, vital interest of the USA going forward and what the authors see as, as some of those. Uh, former many. former ahead, Foreign Service Officer Bill Burns has got an excellent article in the Atlantic, Atlantic.com about the same topic. So it's, it's well worth reading. Right, that came out actually this morning. Uh, uh, yeah. uh, Ambassador William Burns, uh, distinguished uh, diplomat, uh, United States needs a foreign policy in the, the current 
digital edition of the Atlantic. Uh, but we're going to uh, return to some of these uh, points that uh, Breck introduced uh, to us today. Okay, Breck, we're, we're not going to let you rest uh, much uh, here. You've, you've got the, the closing, uh, closing slide here. Okay, uh, the answer to the weekly quiz, the question was again, uh, Turkish President uh, Tayyip Erdogan officially declared that this 1,500-year-old monument is a mosque and announced that the first Muslim prayers will begin there in two weeks. And the answer is A, uh, Hagia Sophia. Terrific. It's a and magnificent building. Dick, did you take the quiz this week? I did. How'd you do? I got this one right. <laughs> I think I, nine out of ten. <laughs> Could have been ten out of ten, but I was waffling on one thing. Anyway. That, that was that was question one. So um, uh, you you made it to ten. That's that's a good thing. Um, well, uh, I just wanted to uh, again uh, remind everybody that if they are looking for, I don't know what the uh, the holiday uh, peg is, uh, Tom, for for your book. There, you know, it's not Father's Day or. Uh, Labor Day, I guess. Uh, would would this be a Labor Day read or a summer beach read? No, it's a Christmas present for everyone on my <laughs> list. Um, so I'm I'm pushing I'm pushing that idea. It's long enough so to, to take a good Christmas vacation. Okay, okay. Well, again, Henry Kissinger um, and uh, American Power, and uh, a political biography by uh, Thomas Schwartz. It'll be out August 25th. Uh, Tom, we hope that uh, you'll be back with us to explore some of that uh, sure. uh, CFR report and, and other topics. Uh, we appreciate uh, your wisdom and uh, insights and perspectives as uh, well, uh, Dr. Breck Walker, and as always, Ambassador Dick Bowers. Um, last comments, uh, anyone, before we uh, sail off here? And see, I kept I to my word you that, that you, you guys could yeah. talk as, as, long as, you, as you, long as you like. <laughs> Well, thank you. Thank you, Pat, for having me on and also for the plug for the book. Uh, I can't do much promotional, uh, physical promotional efforts these days. So uh, doing it by Zoom and doing it this way is unfortunately what I'm left with. So, Well, we, we hope we'll uh, get you, get some of your books uh, around. I'm, I'm looking forward to reading it myself. Okay. Dick and Breck. Um, Thanks so much. Good. Our, our 40 minute program went a little longer, but uh, well, that's, good, okay. good, that's a, good discussion, that's, gentlemen. That's well okay. We, we, we've been able to pay our electric bills, so we have a little extra juice to, 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 run, to run long here. And I'll mention uh, for our, our audience uh, uh, live, we have a program tonight with uh, Thomas Lippman, and uh, he has a book, uh, Crude Oil, Crude Money. And if you are a member of the Tennessee World Affairs Council and you are in the audience tonight, uh, you have a good chance of winning a copy of that book as a door prize. So, uh, uh, yeah, we're... we're not that we need to pay people to come see Tom Lippman. He's uh, a fascinating uh, speaker and we'll be talking about uh, global energy and about his book. So please uh, come visit us uh, tonight at 7 p.m. Central Time uh, for the Global Dialogue with Tom. And on behalf of Ambassador Dick Bowers, Dr. Brick Walker, and Dr. Thomas Schwartz, thank you very much for joining us for the News Review. We'll see you next Tuesday. Thank you, gentlemen. Bye. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Thanks.